It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Monday, June 22, 2020. On today's episode, for the full hour, we have author Lawrence Hill, who will be presenting his novel, The Illegal. Here's how the Globe and Mail book reviewer put it. And while a reviewer who yearns for respect should never, ever use the phrase unputdownable, there we have it. The Illegal is a twisting, intricately woven yarn that spins itself out at an incredible pace. I could not put the book down. Read it. You must. On this day in history, on June 22, 1774, the British Parliament passed the Quebec Act. Now, you may recall from your Quebec history courses in uh, elementary school or in high school that the Quebec Act extended the colony's territory back towards the Great Lakes, and it also restored the French Civil Code. This is one of the reasons why the population in Quebec didn't join the other British colonies to the south in their rebellion a few years later. On June 22, 1911, King George V was crowned King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, Canada, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand. And of course, King George V was the grandfather of Queen Elizabeth II. On June 22, 1937, Joe Lewis knocked out James J. Braddock in a fight that began an unprecedented reign by Lewis that included a 12-year continuous run as champion, where he defeated 25 challengers, and these records still stand today. He's also widely regarded as the first person of African-American descent to achieve the status of nationwide hero within the United States. And finally, on June 22, 1981, tennis player John McEnroe uttered his famous You Cannot Be Serious rant in a first round win over Tom Gullickson at Wimbledon. Here's just a little bit of McEnroe's line. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. That ball was on the line. Chalk flew up. It was clearly it. How can you possibly call that out? How many are you going to miss? He's walking over. Everyone knows it's in his Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's broadcast. We're very thrilled to have Lawrence Hill with us today. So I'm going to share with you a biography. Lawrence Hill is a writer whose novels and works of nonfiction have been widely read in Canada, translated into many languages and published around the world. He is a professor of creative writing at the University of Guelph. He is a graduate of Université Laval with a BA in economics from 1980 and of the Johns Hopkins University with a master's in creative writing from 1993. He speaks English and French fluently and some Spanish. The manuscript for his new children's novel, Beatrice and Croc Harry, is with his publisher. He is the author of 10 books, including The Illegal, The Book of Negroes, Any Known Blood, and Blackberry Sweet Juice on being black and white in Canada. Known as Larry to Friends, he is the winner of various awards, including the Commonwealth Writers Prize and CBC Radio's Canada Reads. He delivered the 2013 Massey Lectures based on his nonfiction book, Blood, The Stuff of Life. He co-wrote the adaptation for the six-part television miniseries, The Book of Negroes, which won 11 Canadian Screen Awards. He has been a volunteer with book clubs for inmates, as well as a longtime supporter of the Black Loyalist Heritage Society of Nova Scotia. 
For more than 40 years, he has been a volunteer with Crossroads International, a nonprofit group working with local groups to support community and economic development for girls and women in sub-Saharan Africa. In 2019, he designed and taught an undergraduate memoir writing course through the Walls to Bridges program at the Grand Valley Institution for Women, a federal penitentiary in Kitchener, Ontario. The course included equal numbers of incarcerated women and traditionally registered university students. Lawrence Hill is the son of the late human rights activists, Daniel and Donna Hill, who co-founded the Ontario Black History Society and who each wrote books about Black history in Canada. For the Globe and Mail in June 2018, Lawrence wrote Act of Love, a long intimate essay about his mother's life and about her medically assisted death in Switzerland. The essay contributed to an ongoing national dialogue about medically assisted dying in Canada. Lawrence's grandfather and father each served as African Americans in the American Army in the First and Second World War Wars, respectively. Currently, he is writing a novel about the African American soldiers who helped build the Alaska Highway in northern BC and Yukon in 1942 and 43. He has been inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame and is a member of the Order of Canada. A member of the Order of Canada, he lives with his wife, Miranda Hill, also a writer in Hamilton, Ontario, and Woody Point, Newfoundland. Welcome, Lawrence. Thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you very much, Danielle. I hope everybody's still awake after that long, long introduction. It's always embarrassing to hear yourself introduced, but I do welcome the opportunity to come to chat with folks at the Cote Saint-Luc uh, Library. So thank you for the invitation. Um, we have agreed that I'm here today to chat a little bit about the genesis and the directions and the organization, the research behind my uh, novel, The Illegal. And then after sort of describing that book a bit and what it's about and how I came to write it and why I feel it's significant today, I will open it up to questions and just chat with people and answer your questions if I can. If I can't answer them, I'll, I'll tell you, but um, I'll do my best to answer them if it's possible. So The Illegal uh, is my uh, fourth novel and 10th book. And in every other book that I've written, um, I really locate the story in, in, in a very specific socioeconomic, political and geographic setting. I mean, one of my books was set in Baltimore and in Oakville, Ontario. Another of my books, The Book of Negroes, takes place in various concrete settings, such as Mali in West Africa, or uh, Birchtown in Nova Scotia, um, London, England, that kind of thing. Uh, another novel of mine earlier called Some Great Thing takes place in the Franco-Manitoban community uh, of St. Boniface and in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So my novels generally are anchored in very specific uh, geographic and urban uh, settings, but also in very specific political and social settings. Uh, but this time I wanted to do something very different. This time in writing The Illegal, I wanted to make up places where the story would take place. And I wanted to be free to invent a world, a dystopia, kind of a social nightmare without being obliged to 
follow specifically or closely or realistically the, the political or the social climate in Canada or in any other country. In say my preceding novel, The Book of Negroes, I tried very hard to, to um, research and to write as authentically as I could about the specific socio and historic realities of black people in New York City and Nova Scotia, in Mali and West Africa, in London, England, in the, in the uh, you know, starting from about 1750 right through to Aminata's death around 1807. And so the story follows a woman's life as she moves around the world and, and enters into all these locations in which she lives, including, of course, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and St. Helena Island in South Carolina, and New, New York City, and, and very much Nova Scotia. But um, again, this time I wanted to be free of the obligation to sort of authentically reproduce a slice of history and be accurate with all the historical details, because I wanted my imagination to be able to take root and to soar without obligation of respecting specific things that are happening today or yesterday. And the novel is about uh, an elite marathon runner who grows up in a very poor country, a black island, an island of black people in, in, a, in a sea, which I fictionally call the Ortiz Sea, which is located somewhere fictionally in the Indian Ocean, somewhere between East Africa and Australia is where the Ortiz Sea is located. In the Ortiz Sea, there's a tiny island called Zantaroland, which is a black island, an island of people who are formerly African. It's a very poor country, you know, about as poor as a Haiti might be. And it's one sort of claim to fame in the world is that it happens to produce the world's fastest marathon runners. So every year, uh, the Boston Marathon or the Chicago Marathon or the Olympic Games are generally won by a slew of runners, you know, who come from this mountainous poor island called Zantaroland. And that's the sort of one claim to fame internationally. And my protagonist, Keita Ali, uh, grows up dreaming to become the fastest marathoner in this country of the world's fastest marathoners. I know something about this because I ran marathons for many years and ran competitively. I wasn't very good, but I ran competitively for many years as an athlete from you know the ages of 10 right through to kind of recreational running in my early 40s when finally my actually my early fifties uh, when finally my knees gave out and I had to stop running. So I know a lot about running and I'm very interested in refugee issues. And so Keita Ali dreams of becoming an elite marathoner, you know, winning the gold medal in the Olympics and becoming rich and famous and venerated in his own country. But his dreams of qualifying for the Olympics and running to glory are shattered when um, genocide and violence directed at his own ethnic group in Zantaroland erupts. His mother is killed, you know, his father is abducted and finally murdered by the state. He realizes that he will be next to be murdered if he stays. The world isn't really recognizing this genocide that is erupting in Zantaroland. It's a little bit like the situation we found in Rwanda where the world refused to recognize and act, you know, as people were being slaughtered in Rwanda. Um, and so he has to flee. And so he flee, he does, and he goes to hide in a neighboring nation, the nation that's closest to Zantaroland, also an island in the Ortiz Sea. It's a big island, um, much, much bigger than Zantaroland. It happens to be the world's fourth richest country. It's a country that had been settled by 
people of European origin. It's called Freedom State. So it's a, it's a democracy. It's a very powerful, rich, modern nation. And it's elected a government that has campaigned on a platform to catch and deport all undocumented refugees. And it has a capital city called Clarkson, which is, you know, again, a predominantly white and very rich, very wealthy city, not uh, terribly unlike a city such as Cape Town in South Africa. Um, and ringing the city on the border of the city is a, is a massive shanty town called Africtown, into which many undocumented refugees have poured. And this country has a long, complex, difficult, fraught relationship with Zantoroland because it um, it's used laborers and it's enslaved people from Zantoroland in the past. It's benefited from their labor to build the country, but now it doesn't want them. And of course, people from Zantoroland are trying to flee to get to Freedom State because they're trying to avoid or escape genocide and being murdered in their own countries. So this government is elected in Zantoroland and has campaigned on a promise, a very hateful, xenophobic, extreme right-wing promise to catch and deport all undocumented refugees, kind of hiding out in this black community called Africtown, which is mass, basically a big uh, a big township or, or ghetto, you know, on the on the edge of uh, Clarkson, the capital city of Freedom State. And so Keita Ali comes to hide in this country. And he's, um, I'm interested in the idea of, of a person who isn't just a refugee, but who's an undocumented refugee, who's paperless, who's wanted by the state. And if he's caught because he's undocumented, he's there illegally, he'll be deported. And if, he, if he's deported, once he's sent back to his home country, he knows that he'll be murdered. And so staying alive in this country is sort of synonymous with staying uncaught. And so he has to find a way to live and to feed himself and to take care of his mounting troubles. Um, and I'm very interested in the plight of people who are undocumented in Canada and in other rich nations around the world. There are millions of people in, in our rich nations around the world who are living without proper documentation, millions. And imagine, like somebody wants to kill you or somebody shoots at you or somebody bursts into your door. You can't call the police because you're undocumented. You're pregnant and you need to deliver your baby. Perhaps you can't call a hospital because you're undocumented. How are you gonna get a library card, a driver's license? How are you gonna rent a place to live? Uh, all these sort of things that, that, that are already difficult for us as ordinary documented citizens in a country such as Canada are sometimes insurmountably challenging if you're an undocumented refugee. And the pressures really build up. And I'm interested in the plight of undocumented refugees. And so Keita becomes one in this country. And of course, one of the most interesting challenges that an undocumented refugee faces in the country in which they're hiding is how are they going to make a living? How are they going to put bread on the table or feed their children? And so Keita Ali uses his marvelously athletic uh, running legs and converts them from uh, instead of chasing for Olympic glory uh, in his home country that he's had to flee of Zantoroland, he's now in Freedom State and he enters local road races. And if anybody here listening has watched or participated in or seen a local road race, a 10 kilometer race or a half marathon or a marathon in Montreal or Ottawa or Toronto or any other major a Canadian city, you'll know that there's prize money associated with winning, say, the Toronto Marathon or the Ottawa Marathon. And, and if you win that race, 
uh, you know, you'll scoop up at least a few thousand dollars, if not more. And this is Kate's only means of staying alive. So he enters local road races anywhere from five kilometers to a marathon, hoping to win so that that becomes his money for food and shelter and his money to fish his sister out of some terrible difficulties that she's fallen into. And, and I'm interested in the, the, the ways that people in my books work. I mean, the, the job you give to your main character, whether it's a rat catcher, which was one of the jobs of one of my characters in an earlier novel called Any Known Blood, or whether it's a midwife, which is the job or the work of my character in the Book of Negroes, the type of work a character does sheds a lot of light on their character and um, can make them very interesting and give you lots to work with in terms of building the sort of person that they are on the page. So Kate Ali, I suppose, as a refugee, he could have been a master chess player or a mathematics teacher or a doctor without without license to practice in, in the country he comes to. But the job that I gave him was to be an elite marathoner and to enter stealthily local marathons under pseudonyms, crazy pseudonyms like Roger Bannister. For those of you who are too young to know, Roger Bannister was the first person to break the four minute mile in 1954. And so he gives himself these fictitious names as he enters local road races and tries to scoop up the money. And the pressure mounts on him as, as should on any character in any novel. I mean, the essence of fiction is to cause your character a problem and then tighten the screws and make the problem worse and worse and worse. And that's why you read a story, to watch a person, hopefully that you can identify with, co cope with problems that become increasingly severe. That's what drama is all about, turning the screws on your character and tightening them. And so the pressure really begins to mount on Keita as he faces possible uh, <clears throat> possibly being caught and deported. And again, his sister's in a terrible problem. She's been kidnapped by his, the state of the country he's fled and they're ransoming her. So he has to come up with money to free his sister from kidnapping that's been perpetrated by the government of his own home country. So he comes from a very corrupt nation, but he quickly discovers that this rich white nation of freedom state is equally corrupt in its own distinct ways. And so he's dealing with corruption and inhumanity in both the country that he fled and in the country that he comes to hide in. So really from the, from the fire to the frying pan. So that's a little bit about the construction of uh, the novel. Um, he's a character who's escaped genocide, who's seen his family members killed, whose sister has been abducted. And he, he doesn't have a lot of heart. You know, he doesn't have a lot of moral energy. He's not a fiery, revolutionary dynamic character. He's just trying to stay alive. And I, I didn't want to make him all cute and funny and alive and fascinating and, and colorful because he's not feeling colorful. He's just trying to stay alive. So how do you create a main character who's not particularly colorful, but just trying to live and still keep the story interesting and hopefully have the reader turn the pages. The way I did that was to construct a whole host of extremely colorful secondary characters. And the only reason that a character who's secondary gets to enter the pages of this novel is to demand something or ask something of Keita Ali, my protagonist. So all these secondary characters are sort of like moons circling the planet Keita. They all, everybody wants a piece of them. They want to sleep with them or they want to write a newspaper story about him or they want to catch and deport him or they want to extort money from him. Everybody wants a piece of Keita Ali and all the characters in the book are there 
only because of the peace that they want of this man. And so that that became my way of really trying to inject a lot of interest and drama and color into the story because all these rotating moon-like secondary characters are very vibrant, colorful, wacky, unusual, kind of unpredictable, some of them dangerous. And so they're the device that I use to lift the story into something that hopefully reads like a little bit like a thriller, even though it's not truly a thriller, it's supposed to read like a fast paced thriller. How did I come to think about this story in the first place? Why would I be interested in, in, in the plight of refugees and undocumented refugees? I have two personal stories to share with you to explain how I came to imagine this story. One of them is that in 1973, when I was 16 years old, I got my first job, my first summer job as a high school student working at the Toronto International Airport. It wasn't even yet called Pearson Airport. And my job was to work with an Ontario government agency that was welcoming immigrants, landed immigrants, as they arrived legally at the airport for the first time with their papers and their families. So I wasn't working with refugees or undocumented refugees. I was working with landed immigrants who were landing there before my eyes. And I helped them in basic ways, find their suitcases, make it through customs and immigration, translate for them if they needed help with, you know, translating from French or Spanish into English. Um, I helped them find accommodation in their first nights in Toronto because many arrived without a place to stay. I told them about things like how to apply for Ontario government health insurance and how to look for work, uh, how to look for what we then called manpower centers, Canada manpower centers, which are places where you can look for, for jobs. Um, so that was my job as a 16-year-old in the summer. It was already quite fascinating, but what made it particularly striking was that 1973 was the summer after 1972. And in 1972, this murderous dictator from East Africa called Idi Amin, who ran the country of Uganda, expelled all people from Uganda, the country in East Africa, who were of Asian origin. And there was sort of a business class, a middle-class business class of people of, of Asian origin who were living in Uganda and had been for generations. And he basically threatened to murder, execute, imprison, and rob of all the property, these, these citizens of Uganda, unless they left. So they were booted out of their own country, countries that they'd been living in for, a country they'd been living in for generations. And Canada actually welcomed many of the refugees who were kicked out of uh, Uganda. And although they were kicked out in 72, and I didn't work at the airport till 1973, they were still arriving, some by circuitous routes, at the Toronto International Airport when I was working there that summer. And every day when I showed up to work at nine o'clock, I'd see refugees sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting with their one bag of possessions to be processed. And every day at five o'clock, when I punched my ticket and finished my day of work and got ready to take the bus back home to the suburbs of Toronto, I'd see them still waiting to be processed uh, by the Canadian government. And um, it was something that really sort of introduced me to world politics and to gl global migrations and to really thinking on a real basis about what it looked like to be a refugee waiting like that to be processed in Canada. And so that was the first thing that sort of caught my fascination and planted itself in my soul. And then many years later, um, I started to visit my late sister, uh, 
alive at the time, whose name is Karen Hill, a younger sister who was living in West Berlin at the time that the Germanys were still divided. And she'd fallen in love with a man who was a Sudanese refugee living in West Berlin. And, and through Karen, I began to meet members of the African community in West Berlin who were predominantly paperless or pretty well paperless, predominantly undocumented, and who'd managed to slip into West Berlin um, coming through uh, East Berlin and through, through the Berlin Wall. But once they arrived in West Berlin, they, it was very difficult for them to live without proper documentation in a country as rigid and formal as Germany. And so watching um, my sister's lover, who became her husband and the father of my niece, um, watching him try to survive as an undocumented refugee in Germany, in the uh, 1980s really got me thinking too about the plight of undocumented people. And what he did to make a living was to draw people's caricatures on the street. So he would offer to, to draw your caricature in 15 quick strokes for like 20 Deutschmark or something like that. If you would just pay him and, and he was on a downtown touristy area, he'd draw your caricature. We've all seen people like that. So he was hustling because that was the one skill he had that he brought with him from Sudan. It used to be a political cartoonist for a newspaper. And once he had to flee for his own life, uh, leaving Sudan, he brought this ability to draw a quick caricature with him. And that's how he made his living. So that got me thinking too about how quick-witted you have to be just relying on whatever you've got to stay alive when you're hiding without papers in a country that often doesn't want you. So these are some of the things that led me to write the book and to care about the issues. But also, I wanted to write this book as a kind of a dystopia and to meditate on the hatred that seems to be abundant in Canadian and American and French and Australian and other societies toward refugees, toward people who might be Muslims, toward other people, Africans and others uh, who are fleeing and who are arriving. And, and as the plight of refugees has grown more and more serious over the years, I think hatred and xenophobia has unfortunately has risen step in step with the rise of, of refugee migrations. And so this is something that worries me a great deal, the rise of xenophobia and hatred toward refugees. Um, it led my wife with me uh, supporting her in the background to sponsor a family of Syrian refugees to Hamilton, Ontario, where we live. And she did that uh, with, uh, with the help of a number of friends in our neighborhood. Um, but it's, it's been a preoccupation of mine for some time. And so in order to write about the plight of such people, I decided to set this book in two imaginary places. Sometimes an imaginary setting can be the best way to get you read it, to drop your defenses and just step into the story and not feel personally targeted. You know, Alice in Wonderland, Harry Potter, you can go on and on about all the stories that have come out of, uh, out of the imagination of writers that are set in imaginary places that get you to meditate on social injustice uh, without feeling personally attacked. Um, so that's a little bit about how I came to write uh, The Illegal. And uh, um, I guess I'll say one other thing, and that is that just like I found in writing The Book of Negroes, one of the most interesting characters to develop was a character who was hard to read, <clears throat> whose morality was in question, who was hard to know at first whether she's 
a good person or a bad person. And often in a movie, you're encouraged to know right away whether you're looking at a good person or a bad person. But in fiction, I'm more interested in the gray areas, the in-between, the ambiguity, morality. I'm more interested in characters who are hard to define, who might be a little bit good and a little bit bad. In the Book of Negroes, I had a character uh, who was a slave owner, but who was Jewish, who sort of falls into a kind of a platonic love in a way with his character, with the person he owns, my protagonist, Aminata. His name is Solomon Lindo. He wants to do the right thing by her, but he's ashamed deep down that here he is, a Jewish man who's who, who knows all about injustice that's been meted out against Jewish people over, over the millennia. And yet here he is being a slave owner and owning a black woman in South Carolina in the 18th century. And so on one hand, he teaches her how to read, helps her learn how to read and write and read maps and so forth and develop numeracy, he and his wife. On the other hand, he propagates the system of slavery in some very evil way. So is he good or is he bad? He's kind of hard to read. And those characters are really interesting for me to create. And in the illegal, I had a character of similar complexity whose name is Lula Di Stefano, and she runs uh, uh, the township of um, Africtown in the novel. And on one hand, you know, if you cross her, she'll murder you. And on the other hand, she's really looking to advocate for the social and the civic rights of all the black people who are living, many without documentation in Africtown, outside this very rich city of of Charles of uh, Clarkson in in uh, Freedom State, and so she also is hard to read. Is she a good person advocating for her community, or is she a cold-blooded murderer? Well, maybe she's a little bit of both, and I'm very interested in exploring that that ambiguity of morality in both in both novels. I'm more than happy to uh, stop yakking at you and to step into some questions if you'd like to chat with me about them. Thank you so much, Lawrence. So I guess I don't see any questions right now, so I'll ask you a question. In relation to the illegal, how would you say people can survive and more than that, maybe thrive when they don't quite fit into traditional mold or the categories that people want them to be fitting into? How do people survive when they don't fit into the categories that people want them to fit into? Survive as well as thrive. Mm -hmm. Well, survival and thriving are really interesting things. And, and of course there's physical survival. You know, are you gonna drown in some rickety um, dinghy that's trying to cross the Mediterranean? And we all know that thousands of people fleeing uh, misery in their homelands, say leaving North Africa, you know, have died trying to reach um, refugee camps in, in Europe, died, I, we all know this. And so sometimes your, your plight is so terrible that you risk death in order to get out of the place that you're in. So there's physical survival. And of course that also applies to the transatlantic slave trade and all the people who, who managed miraculously to survive the middle passage and being shipped across the ocean in bondage from Africa to the Americas. And then there's emotional survival, which interests me even more. You know, how do you endure some of those worst insults that humanity can know? How do you endure some of the most horrendous things, everything short of being murdered yourself, and not become a hateful, bitter, angry person who's just so consumed with rage that you can't see past your own, your own hatred? Um, and, and I'm fascinated with that. And there are indeed 
countless people today and yesterday and 400 years ago, you know, who, who have survived indescribably painful, horrendous situations, who still go on loving and living as beautifully as they can, wanted to live a good life, to be kind and loving to the people around them. And I'm very interested in that emotional survival, um, both in the illegal, you know, and in the Book of Negroes and in some of my other works. And as for not fitting in, well, in certain ways, I mean, I'll answer the question provocatively, why should you fit in? I mean, as long as you're obeying the laws of a country and, and acting as a proper citizen, why shouldn't you be free to practice your own, your own religion, even if it's very distinct from the religions you know, of the majorities of people? Or why shouldn't you cook your own foods? Or why shouldn't you sort of want to organize yourself in your own ways? Uh, um, I'm not a person who believes that the essence of immigration is to quash everybody's individuality and make them all the same. Um, I, I see no reason why we can't sort of, on one hand, encourage people to follow and to respect the laws of Canada, but also to allow them and encourage them to be themselves and to express humanity in all sorts of diverse ways. And so that can be a challenge, especially if you're living in a country or in a part of the country that's exhibiting intolerance towards religious or racial or ethnic diversity. That can be a grave challenge. But... Um, Ultimately, you have to really fight and be a very strong person to resist uh, some of the xenophobia and hatred and racism and poverty that you'll probably endure. You know, if you're coming into a country, you know, that doesn't want you and sees your habits and your ways of being and your clothing and your beliefs as being alien or unacceptable, that's a major challenge. And it's something that faces millions of people around the world. It's not just uh, one or two people here or there. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Um, another question I have for you is, um, what does it mean to you in relation to the illegal, this concept of home? Thank you, Danielle. That is such a, a great question. And, you know, somebody pointed out to me that in something like two of my novels, and I wasn't even aware of this until it was pointed out, the last word in the book was home. <laughs> and clearly, I'm very interested in home, and I'm very interested in notions of dislocation. And I guess I keep coming back over and over again in my fiction to the to the search for home, the search for community, the search for belonging. Uh, not just a home like a f bricks and mortar, like a door and a bed, but a home where you feel that you belong. And and of course, one of the things that I examine in different ways in the illegal and in the Book of Negroes and some other books is the notion that once you're gone, once you've left the place that you grew up in, you will be forever changed and it will be forever changed. And you can never go home to return to the life that you once had because you will be changed by the time you've left and by the time you come back and it will be changed. Maybe it's been burned to the ground and doesn't exist anymore, but even if it still exists, you will have changed so much and so will it have that you can never really go home, meaning go back in time to the way you used to live. And for many people in the world, including many of the characters that I dream up, home becomes something that you have to create. Home becomes you know, the heart you know, in your own body. Home becomes the love that you embody and that you share with other people. Home sort of becomes what you make of it because you've lost your home and you're searching for another. And uh, and in my experience, sometimes people who are away from their homes, people who've been deracinated 
as they say in French, you know, people who've been um, forced or who've chosen to exile themselves. Often those people are the most open and loving and searching of human beings because they have no choice but to reach out and connect with other human beings to begin to form new communities. This is a minor example, and believe me, I'm not, I've had a fortunate life, but um, it makes me think about uh, going to be a graduate student in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins University some years ago. And pretty well everybody that I met and befriended were graduate students who were also from other countries because they were the ones who were looking for company, for connections, for new liaisons, because they too were alone and kind of stranded in this big city of Baltimore in the United States. And it really kind of struck home the point that often, you know, if you do have to leave or choose to leave your, your home, you're gonna be more open than many other people to new friendships and to, and to stitch together new relationships. Thank you very much, Lawrence. So as I'm sure you can imagine at the library in Cote St. Luke, but I'm sure in every library pretty much, that's what we strive for, to provide people with a sense of community, with a sense of belonging, a safe place that they feel is engaging. So thank you very much for answering our questions. Now, if you don't mind, I would like more of a sneak peek of your latest novel. Sure. You know, I'm just going to add something, though. That, uh, I will come back to that question, Danielle, about the latest. But I want to add that there's a scene or two in The Illegal. It has to do with a, my character, this undocumented refugee. His name is Keita Ali. And he's trying to get a library card in the city that he's hiding in, in Clarkson. And, and of course, he desperately needs a library card to get onto a computer, to see if he can get in touch with his sister or figure out what's happened to her because she's disappeared and she's been kidnapped. And, um, and of course, libraries are so much more than places to borrow books or look at newspapers. Although I've seems I've spent half my life in libraries and in archives researching books and reading. So I adore them and I always have, but they're more than just places to read books or newspapers and go online for, for those same things. They're also places to get out of the cold, you know, places to get out of the heat or get out of the rain. They're places to seek comfort. And for a person who's got nothing, and who doesn't belong. Often a library is one of the few places you can go and feel welcome and perhaps not be kicked out, you know, where you can breathe for a minute. And so I'm very interested in the relationship between libraries and newcomers. And so for those of you who are interested, there is a pretty vivid scene in the, the, in, in the illegal about a library. And indeed one of my minor characters, has to, she's in a lot of trouble. So she has to take a job as a part-time librarian to sort of redeem herself socially after having, you know, had some troubles with the law. And so when she's working in this library, she starts giving out fake library cards to, <laughs> to undocumented people who wouldn't qualify for a library card because they don't have the proof of residence and they can't establish that they have a residence in that city. But she does it anyway. And she gives out fake library cards to whomever she thinks deserves one. And it's, it's sort of a comical, joyful resurrection of uh, my imagination. So I just wanted to share that with you. There is a library scene in the illegal. Um, as for your question about the thing I'm working on now, well, I'm working on two things, uh, a book about the history of the Alaska Highway, which I can talk about more in a minute if you'd like. But lately I've been focused for the last year on finishing up and I'm almost done a novel for children. 
uh, sort of age nine to 13. And I've never written a novel for children before. And it's been an incredibly joyous, happy experience. It's about 350 pages. It's, um, it's about this black girl who wakes up one day in a forest, um, a massive, huge forest, and she has no idea who she is. She has no memory at all of where she comes from or who her family might be or why she's there. She just wakes up in a forest, in a treehouse in a forest with no other human beings. And it's such a big forest and she has no way to, out of it. She's stuck in that forest. And, uh, and then she begins to befriend a 700 pound crocodile, a uh, 17 foot, 700 pound crocodile. And at first, you know, she's not sure if this crocodile is gonna become her best friend or whether he's going to eat her for breakfast. And it's, it's somewhat of a meditation on friendship and trust and alliance. But eventually as a form of friendship, they have to go on a journey together to help each other out. So it's, uh, it's sort of a, a romp of a novel about this tempestuous relationship between an 11 year old girl in the forest and this, uh, 700 pound crocodile who have to go on a on a journey together thank you lawrence that that sounds like something completely different but very enjoyable and i'm glad you have the opportunity to work also on a children's book so maybe i'll segue into uh how has your role as a father shaped you and has it had an effect on your writing <laughs> well, that's a great question. Well, I have five children, but you know, I'm 63, so the children are all grown now. The youngest is 21, and the eldest is turning 30 this year. Um, and they're all out. Uh, well, one of them moved back into this when the pandemic was declared, when her university was shut down. But other than the youngest, he's moved back into this temporarily to deal with this pandemic. All the other kids are sort of living on their own in different cities and um living independently uh, but of course still love them very much and are in, and in touch with them very much and being a father has been one of the richest things in my life and of course i received a lot of storytelling when i was a boy you know one of the most generous and beautiful things you can do for a person is for a little person is to read them stories or make up stories for them at bedtime reading with your children, being seen to read, making up stories is really a gloriously beautiful way to communicate with, with people of all age. But now I'm thinking about young people, children. And it certainly was for me. And I certainly benefited from having stories read to me by my mother and made up for me by my father at that side. And so it's a beautiful way to bond and to stimulate the imagination and to stimulate, of course, literacy. And so, the story that I've just been mentioning to you about the girl and the crocodile actually had its genesis when I would tell my youngest daughter, Beatrice, who's now 21, bedtime stories. And I'd make up stories about her as a fictional character encountering a crocodile. And every story involved a near-death incident when she'd almost be killed by this crocodile. But the last minute, she'd out outsmart him, outwit him, outmaneuver the crocodile and be free again. And maybe she'd be trapped in his stomach and she'd find a way to climb back out of his stomach and get free, or maybe trapped in his jaws and she'd find a way to prop open his mouth and climb back out of his mouth. And she just loved these stories about this girl who was always outwitting a, a, a crocodile. And so in my case, of course, uh, being a father, you know, gave rise to my imagination of the novel that I'm now 
that I'm now finishing. What can I say? I mean, I had to hustle, work very hard as a freelance writer, a journalist, a speech writer, a novelist, an essayist to make a living to support those children. So they spurred me on to work really hard so I can feed them and take care of them and house them. But it also was just has just been one of the most beautiful parts of my life, sort of raising and taking care of and loving children and being loved by them. And so I guess the biggest answer is it's just enriched me profoundly and given me that much more to imagine as a novelist. Thank you again, Lawrence. Um, so I imagine you had pretty big shoes to fill coming from who you came from. Your both parent, both of your parents were activists, important in uh, human rights. Is this something that's important for you to pass on to your children? Oh, yes, absolutely. I sometimes joke that there are two sorts of people in life. The people who feel that they have to overthrow every value their parents gave them when they were young. They just have to be complete revolutionaries, toss it all overboard and forge a completely distinct life. Some people have to do that. They have no choice, you know, to survive except to reject the values that they were raised with and to create their own values that are more in accordance with their own souls. And other people you know, really embody profoundly the values of their parents and then they propagate those same values. And I fall into the latter camp. You know, my parents, uh, my father was the first director and then the first chairperson of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Uh, he and my mother co-founded the Ontario Black History Society. They both wrote books about black history in Canada. My father was the ombudsman of Ontario as well. They spent their whole lives at the forefront of the human rights movement in Canada after moving as an interracial couple to Canada the day after they married in Washington, DC in 1953. And so their values very much became my values. Uh, I wrote a piece that appeared in the Globe and Mail today about how I was raised by parents who were both civil rights activists and atheists. And one, and one of the uh, cardinal rules of my childhood was not to eat any Aunt Jemima products because they reflected a deeply embedded racial stereotype that sort of that sort of was based on the idea that a woman with a handkerchief over her hair who was black and who was enslaved had nothing better to do but be joyful cooking for people in their kitchens, cooking for white people who owned her in their kitchens. And we were just so outraged by this racial stereotype of the happy black cook who's enslaved cooking for white people that uh, we were not allowed as children to eat the syrup or the Aunt Jemima pancake mix. And so I wrote a story in the Globe and Mail today about this because finally Quaker Oats has decided to abolish the Aunt Jemima brand and get rid of it because it has even acknowledged that its entire brand is based on a, on a negative racial stereotype. And so, um, so I wouldn't eat these things when I was a kid. And of course my children won't touch them either and haven't ever touched them because they're very conscious of my values which have become their values. So yes, I mean, they're living individually and they're living with their own passions, but my children have very much, uh, I think, adopted and propagated my values. And of course that feels wonderful. Thank you, Lawrence. So you've also been on the news recently on The National. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Yes, well, I mean, anybody who's awake and who's paying attention to the media these days is, is aware that there are protests in 
cities all across Canada and the United States and the world protesting against anti-Black violence. And let's remember that this is, you know, violence against Black people, uh, racism and discrimination, whether it's overt or subtle, whether it's killing somebody, you know, as a lynching, or whether it's systemic uh, racism, is something that's deeply part of Canadian society as well as American. Uh, slavery existed in Quebec, in Ontario, PEI, uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, just as it existed in the United States. There are terrible acts of violence against enslaved peoples in Canada, just as there were in the United States. And, um, and we have a legacy of uh, segregation and of racial discrimination that has continued since that time in Canada, just as we have in the United States. And so uh, we sort of are facing a perfect storm of, of problems right now. I think COVID has um, disproportionately affected Black and other racialized people in the world. And uh, so on top of sort of savaging and ravaging Black and other communities, COVID has also sort of, you know, locked us down. And, and at the same time that we were dealing with COVID, as everybody else is, we've been seeing this eruption of violence against Black people, you know, who've been killed by police officers and by members of the general public in Canada and in the United States. And uh, we focused on the elements in the United States because it's morally comfortable to think about problems of our neighbors without examining our own issues in our own backyard. But it's sort of a perfect storm of problems and violence and, and people are just fed up. And so as you don't have to take my word for it. People are demonstrating in huge numbers, in such numbers that Trump decides to tear gas them in order to be able to walk to to, to a church he doesn't even attend and hold up a Bible the, upside down to pretend that he's a powerful president. Uh, so he's tear gassing nonviolent protesters to walk to a staged Bible holding outside a church he doesn't attend. I mean, we're seeing violence uh, every day directed against black and indigenous peoples in this country and in the United States and people are just fed up. So there's a protest, it's swelling. And so I was asked to meditate on this you know, for the national. And I guess one of the points I was trying to make is that it's just too comforting and too reassuring to point an accusatory finger at the Americans while ignoring that slavery and segregation and racism has been a fact of life in Canada too. And so this was, I think, ultimately the point I was trying to make and to hope as most people with a good heart would hope that something good comes of this. And that it's not just a matter of protest, but that our society does profoundly and fundamentally change for the better and become more inclusive and more accepting so that black people and other racialized people have more opportunities to get ahead and to, and to move equally you know, into these societies. So that was essentially what I was writing about and speaking about on the national as I have you know, for other media in the last few days. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Now I see a question from the audience, so I'll read it out for you. It's from Martin. What advice do you have for young authors? Who did you read when you were a kid and how can kids refine their writing skills? Oh, that's a great question. What advice do I have for young authors and how can you refine your writing skills and who did I read as a kid? Well, let's, let's talk about Martin first and about young authors and then we can come back to me. Um, I have this saying, it's kind of a little playful and silly and a little bit a little bit provocative, but 
when people ask me what the secret is to writing, especially young people, I, have this, I say the secret is G-Y-A-I-C. And they say, well, what on earth is G-Y-A-I-C? And I say, well, it's get your ass in chair. And, and in other words, if you want to write, you have to sit down in that chair, turn off the cell phone, turn off your email, turn off Twitter, close the door if you have a door to close, and just focus and learn to get comfortable in your own imagination, with your own words, with your own stories. Learn to believe that you have something beautiful that's worth unearthing, that's worth spilling onto the page. You get comfortable spending a lot of time by yourself. And um, writing, you know, it's not that much different than throwing a basketball or learning how to play scales as a saxophonist. You have to do it over and over and over again. You, you know, no saxophonist is going to go up and play on Carnegie Hall without having practiced 10 million times. And no writer, unless they're born with the brilliance of Mozart, is going to just write a first draft and think that the job is done and they can go on and publish that thing. We have to work on material over and over and over again with draft after draft until it's ready to be published. And so a young writer has to learn the discipline of sitting down and working regularly and get in just living in their own imagination and seeing what spills out that day on the page and then having the maturity to throw it out and start all over again and rewrite it the next day and the next day until it really begins to hum and sing and so uh, the advice i have is to g-y-a-i-c get your ass in chair sit down and write and then write some more and then write some more and when you're not writing you should be reading if for example you're interested in science fiction, then you should be reading the world's best science fiction writers. You know, if you're interested in um, something else, like say short stories, you should be reading the world's best short story writers. You should, you should be reading and reading in the areas that you wanna write in, and then you should be writing and rewriting until the cows come home. So that's uh, my advice for young people. Get to it and stay with it and read as much as you can and write as much as you can and edit yourself until the cows come home. Um, as for what I read as a young person, well, I mean, I was born in 57. I grew up in the 60s. My parents were American, a, a black man and a white woman who came to Canada the day after they married. They brought their books with them. They were intellectuals. So I grew up on all the literature that was on the bookshelves of my parents' homes. And mostly that was black literature written by black essayists, novelists, and poets of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. The people that my parents introduced me to were the first writers that I read, you know, as reading adult literature. So James Baldwin, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Gwendolyn Brooks, Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison, Langston Hughes, you know, these were all the writers that I began to devour as a 14 year old when I sort of moved into adult literature and began to just eat it up. And I read every book my parents had and then some. And so I began with the black literature that was erupting, you know, in the United States in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Thank you so much, Lawrence. We had our own debate, a sort of a shorter version of Canada Reads a few years back at the library when you were defending your book, The Illegal, and uh, just thought you should know your book won at our library as well. So congratulations on that. And I'm sure our listeners want to know when they can expect your next book. I'm not sure. COVID has really thrown a wrench into 
the publishing, as you can imagine, it's very hard to bring out a book when you can't tour with it, you know, when you can't get easily to media to talk about it, or they can't get to you very easily. Uh, you can't assemble people to give readings or to go to literary festivals. Uh, the pandemic has, you know, affected so many elements of our economy. But if we just stop and think about the arts for a minute, you know, if you're in theater or if you're a guitarist or, or a hip hop artist, you know, or a writer, how do you do your thing in public? How do you perform? And a huge part of my life has been to perform when there can be no audience gathered to, to hear you. Yes, of course, you can go on Zoom or you can do this or that, but it's not the same as being in a room with 200 people and signing their books and shaking their hands and saying hello to them individually and, uh, you know, feeling that, you know, you're close to each other in the same space. And so it's a difficult time to bring out a book. I'm just finishing the children's book. Maybe that will be out in about a year and a half. And the novel that I'm working on about the Alaska Highway, it too needs about a year and a half or two. And I'm hoping that by that time, the world will be, you know, a little bit better and perhaps we'll be in a better position to circulate without so much fear about um, catching the pandemic or getting very sick or dying if you're sort of circulating with other people. So if I'm lucky in the next couple of years, I should have two books coming out, but it's hard to say exactly right now because we're going to write out the pandemic and see what happens. Excellent. We'll definitely be keeping our eyes out for that. Thank you so much, Lawrence, for taking the time to join us today. I'm not seeing any other questions right now appearing from the audience, so I would like to just say a huge thank you. We were very, very happy to have you today on Zoom. Thank you so much, Danielle. Uh, thank you to the Côte Saint-Luc Library. I've had the chance to come many times to libraries in Quebec and to yours in the past. And, and let's hope that we all stay well and healthy and that you'll have a chance to be welcoming uh, authors again face to face. And when that happens, I shall be there leading the charge and I'd love to come again to your library. So thank you for this invitation today. Thank you, Lawrence. All the best to you and yours. Okay, take care.